a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. I'm your host, Rebecca Cressman, and what a delight and an honor to have in studio with us, Jane Clayson Johnson. You have seen her on television. She's a widely known and award-winning journalist. You've seen her on CBS, ABC, and heard her on NPR. She's also the best-selling author of I Am a Mother. Only now, Jane, you are also an author of a book called Silent Souls Weeping, and it's about depression. Jane, welcome. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. us. Nice to see you again. It is wonderful to see you. Now, how many years? Years was this book in in in, prod, in production? So I worked on it for three years. Actually, it, it was three years in the making. I uh, interviewed over 150 uh, men, women, and teenagers uh, to hear their stories about depression, and I just wanted to get a sense of what was happening uh, in the lives of people who experience depression, um, but but keep it to themselves. They're silent. They don't share their experience. And when I went through my own depressive uh, experience and had a very difficult time, I started talking with people slowly and in safe settings about what had happened to me. And and I couldn't believe how many people um, had had similar experiences. And I thought, you know, we have to talk about this because everyone was so quiet about it. Everyone was just almost afraid to talk about it, embarrassed to talk about it, shamed to t- ashamed to talk about it. And so instead of just talking to people, I started asking to interview them. And that's how this um, project was born. It's interesting because there are a couple of key words I listened to is they weren't talking about it. Uh, there was shame involved. And because of the illness that depression is, it reinforces that behavior, right. doesn't it? That's right. It puts you into isolation. That's right. It does have you doubt yourself. It doubts your self-worth. It's such a difficult, difficult thing to understand. it. And may I just say, your book is extraordinary because it not only is so human – we have so many people who are opening their hearts and telling their stories. and But you give us so much concrete um, medical background and science for us to understand that. So there's a lot of research, um, yeah. but this is not a sugar-coated portrayal of depression. This is raw and it is real. And it's almost documentary style in print. I take people's words and I tell their stories um, and I intermingle that with uh, the latest research and what we know from, you know, I interviewed um, psychiatrists and psychologists and many, many doctors for this project. So I try to integrate all of that to tell a whole story kind of of what's happening to us about mental illness. And that's the number one thing that came up in all the interviews was the stigma, this embarrassment, even shame attached not only to a mental health, mental illness diagnosis, but the medication prescribed and even the therapy um, required for treatment. I cannot tell you how many times someone said to me, I've never talked about this before. My parents don't even know this. So we're making slow progress and we're chipping away at that stigma. But stigma is still the number one reason that individuals, families, people do not reach out and ask for support 
um, in the middle of a crisis. I see three things, and, and you explored that in your book, and you're saying, number one, it's hard to accept or get that diagnosis of depression. Either, you know, we don't have the skills to recognize what we're going through as depression. Right. Number two, there's the stigma of taking medication, and the stigma of getting help, therapy. So you explore all of that, and I congratulate you. But you do begin. You have a statement that says, this book, you hope, opens the blinds into a dark room. Right. I thought that was such beautiful symbolism. Well, I think for a long time, people thought that depression was some sort of character flaw that, you know, you could just will yourself out of it. If I try harder, I can get over this. You know, I mean... <laughs> Depression is not the result of some sort of personal inadequacy. It's not a black mark on your character. It, you know, if you have clinical depression, you cannot just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and snap out of it and fix it with hard work and discipline. You need treatment. Just like you go to a cardiologist, if you have heart disease, if you have uh, diabetes, you take insulin. If you have a broken arm, you get a cast on that arm. You know, depression and mental illness generally requires treatment. And until, until we start talking about that and acknowledging it and understanding the symptoms and understanding the disease itself, because it is so silent, but it is also invisible. You know, I mean, you can see that I've got a cast on my arm, right? You can see that I'm uh, in the hospital and I've, I'm, you know, heart disease and, and open heart surgery. But boy, mental illness is hard. It's a hard nut to crack and you can't see it. And often for those loved ones or neighbors or coworkers, we don't know right. what to do. Right. Um, the book, and for those who just joined us, thank you for tuning in. It's Utah Weekly Forum and joining us in studio is award-winning author and a widely known television host, Jane Clayson Johnson. And in the role of journalist, I mean, I, I can see in your writing the the impact that your journalistic background has had in you exploring uh, depression and how it affects so many of us. And I appreciate that because you said it's not sugar-coated story. Mm-hmm. It's real, mm-hmm. but it also explores so many deep truths that we need to look at in the context, too, of people of faith. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a whole other layer there. But may I ask, I'm going to ask you this question. You begin with your story. And you open up the blinds into that very personal dark room. That must have been difficult. It was. <laughs> um, you know, I think we all feel uh, a sense of vulnerability when we open ourselves up um, to difficult experiences that we've had in our lives. It's not easy. Um, but I decided that if I was going to ask other people to open up about their experiences, that I had to be more honest and open about my own. And so I tell very honestly um, what happened to me was a very unexpected um, kind of – it was a tsunami. Uh, it, this depression came on like – I mean, I, I didn't know what was happening to me. I had never felt this before. So dark and so upset and angry and sleeping all the time. I mean, just all the classic symptoms. And it went on for a long time. And I was, I didn't know what was happening to me because I'd never felt it before. I mean, I'd had situational sadness, I call it, you know, where, you know, you have a good cry or two or three and you get over it, right? But when I was in this depression, I felt like I was in a burlap sack and someone had tied the top of the sack and I couldn't untie that sack. I couldn't get out of it. And um, it scared me. Um, and so that experience really changed me. Um, and as I said, that's 
kind of what led to this. It is what led to this project. Mm. And you're very brave too. In that uh, later in the book, you sit down with your husband and you ask him what it was like for him yeah. to to do that, yeah. to experience yeah. having someone um, who's so capable. Um, and, and that's when I say, you know, were you nervous to share your story? When you sometimes we may feel like when we've accomplished a lot of things in our life mm-hmm. to open up the curtains a bit feels even scarier. And yet, um, I'm sure all of us, it doesn't matter where we are in our life. We're all scared to be seen as being vulnerable. But Mark was vulnerable and talked about how that affected him as a spouse. So was it your personal experience that motivated you to say, I'm going to write a book about this? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when I started talking with other people and realizing that I wasn't alone, but I could see that other people felt that they were alone um, in their depression and in their, um, you know, the byproducts of depression are significant too, Rebecca. I mean, you know, you're, you have depression, you have a mental illness, you're out of school for a semester, you know, you, um, you're out of step socially or employment wise, you're having trouble, you know, and people blame themselves. They think, what have I done to bring this on? Um, and, can you imagine if we blamed people for having cancer or diabetes? Can, or diabetes? Sure. Mm-hmm. Can you can you imagine if we blamed ourselves for that? You know, I I just say over and over again, depression is a physical illness. It is a condition that needs to be treated. And so my own story when I recognized, I mean, I, I you know, I I tell a very um well, you've read it. I mean, it's a it's a very honest and authentic representation of what happened to me. I mean, I I'm with you in the parking lot when you talk about how you pulled over wherever you were at and you inclined your chair, reclined the seat of your car and let all your emotions out. And then a stranger came up and knocked on your window and talked with you and recognized and encouraged you to reach out to someone you cared about. You are so, that's just, that's the, you know, you leave us kind of at that point, but you take us through that journey. And I think for me, it was so powerful, not just as a woman and a mother, uh, as a journalist, for us to see the story. Mm. It comes upon us. We're not sure what's happening. Right. We don't recognize ourselves. We feel right. ashamed because of that. And we're not recognizing the symptoms until we get to this point right. where we're losing the ability Right. Right. And that, and, and my husband, you know, I thank him for stepping in and for, um, taking me not to not one doctor, but two doctors. And, you know, I started some cognitive behavioral therapy and I did start some medication for a time. I mean, I say in the book, it was like I had come to a, 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 the top step in a very tall, steep flight of stairs. And I got to this top step. And I just felt like I couldn't go another step. <laughs> I just couldn't. This depression had taken over my mind. And I felt like if I took one more step, I just would have fallen down. I would just have been careening down into a black hole to the unknown um, and to a very, very bad place. And so I was just stuck. And so what I say in the book is, is these cognitive skills and the medication for a time gave me the tools that I needed to be able then to start healing and to take that next step um, up to the next platform where I could then continue um, with my life. I mean, I had two little children, you know. And you would look around your life. You shared this and say, why aren't I feeling right. great right now? Right. Great husband. Right. Great, great children. Yeah. 
I, ha- I had everything I had ever wanted. I felt so blessed, which was part of the problem. How could I be so ungrateful and and depressed when I was so blessed? Um, and and that leads into another part of the book that I talk about. You know, sort of how people of faith deal with depression. Um, you know how we think. Well, if we just pray more, this will go away. Um, you know, miracles happen. I believe that to be true, and prayer is incredibly important. But would you pray your heart disease away? Would you sit in the corner and hope that it would just stop? No. Um, so people of faith, I think, have a very unique set of challenges, especially people um, in, in our in, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who feel like they're trying to um, take a disease manifest through sorrow and put it into uh, in a church that has this plan of happiness that we want to live by. Um, so it's it's difficult, um, and I think we have to be extra cognizant of it. I'm really glad that you uh, explore that because I learned. Uh, what I was learning from your book is that often in the depths of a depressive episode, we lose the ability to be spiritually sensitive. And in the context of anyone of faith, and as you mentioned, particularly members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to have the, quote, spirit with you, to recognize spiritual moments is key, to feel that connection. And yet you very honestly explore, not just with your own personal experience with others, a varying... uh, knowledge, PhDs, and stake release society presidents and stake professors. Presidents. Yes, yeah. stake presidents and, and people who are stewards of, of um, other religious groups like bishops, etc. Right. They are talking about what is it like when they personally experienced a depressive episode and felt a loss of spiritual connection. What does that do to my spiritual moorings? Right. Do, do I lose my relationship with God? Right. And, and, and does that... Does that bewilder me even more when I'm already feeling mentally lost, right? Exactly right. So this is the second big theme. If stigma was the first, the second one was, you know, being feeling like I was abandoned by God, feeling like all feelings of the spirit had stopped. You know, for me, depression blocked all feelings and blocked feelings of the spirit. So and I was doing everything right, you know. I mean, I was living a good life, and I had always been taught, you know, if you're following the commandments and you're living a good life and you're helping people and you're serving and you're doing all these good things, then you should be happy. And if you're not and you're sad or you're not social or you're crying all the time, then somehow you have done something and you need to, you know, fix it or repent, right? So I, it was extra confusing for me. Um, and many, many people said this. And in very authentic and um, just heartbreaking ways, um, you know, I I feel like the loss of the spirit is the most important reason to get help, right? When you feel abandoned by God, when you feel like this is on you, that if I need to be more righteous or I need to pray more, I need to serve more, do all these things. Again, would you say that if you had diabetes and that that would make you well, you know, it's just it's a different mindset. We have to change our mindset as people of faith. We have to change our mindset and understand what depression is in the context of our faith, that it is just another illness that we have to treat. And if we believe 
that we should be able to woman up or man up and manage this ourselves, right. we have to understand that those are cultural expectations that may have come from generations before us right. about stoicism right. that might have leaked in, right, right, to our family, leaked into our, um, our own emotional uh, development. And right. we didn't, and now we're correcting that, doing our very best to correct that. For those who've just joined us, uh, we have a few more minutes with Jane Clayson Johnson. She is the award-winning journalist that you've watched on CBS and ABC. You've had the opportunity to hear her on NPR. She has also written a best-selling book called I Am a Mother. Now we're talking about her recent book. It's called Silent Souls Weeping, Depression, Sharing Stories, Finding Hope. And uh, this book is available for you to find now. One of the things that I, I mentioned a little bit earlier is that you do explore the science of depression. You explore kind of, a, I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, a little part of our brain that might be overreacting to stimuli, to fear, and set us on a pattern of not being able to um, to be healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, one doctor told me... Um, the, the best way to treat depression is to pull from the best of science and the best of religion um, because there are wonderful ways to um, look outside yourself and to serve and to help others. and to. But in the context of having traction with therapy and sometimes medication and under, you know, um, uh, under a doctor's care, you know, when you have a, a mental illness – so again, you know, I say in the book, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a PhD. Um, I look at depression from an observational perspective and from interviews I've done with more than 150 people. Um, I also speak with many doctors and physicians and they say the same thing, you know, um, again, back to this notion of of, of depression being an illness that needs to be treated. Mm-hmm. And you did mention service. I'm glad that you brought that up because in the faith context, in addition to health treatment, one of the things they do say is serving other people can help bring you out of the isolation. It's just one part of a full treatment plan. Um, I want to ask you about a very difficult chapter. It was hard for me to read. Um, again, all of it was difficult, but beautiful. Um, it was a chapter or two talking about teen suicides. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about an epidemic in the country, mm-hmm. and it's been here in the state of Utah as well. And we would sometimes think we shouldn't uh, have our children, our teenagers, at risk of depression or suicide because of what we know in our faith. Um, And you talk to parents about what it's like for them to have a child who was suicidal or a child who took his or her life. Right. So these are two of the most um, difficult and, and yet, I think, I hope, helpful chapters in the book. The one is about kids and teens who um, suffer with depression, and some of that leads to suicidal ideation. The second chapter is on suicide. Um, And I guess there are two things I'd say. The first is that um, when it comes to suicide, I mean, the epidemic of suicide, the numbers are so striking. I mean, we all know them. This generally in the United States, a 28% increase in uh, the suicide rate just in the last 10 years. And the most striking in Utah, of course, is that our young people are struggling, um, and suicide is the number one cause of death for young people ages 15 to, to, to 24. So uh, I think the most important thing to understand is that talking about suicide and talking about mental health is the most important 
preventative and protective factor against this. I talked to many physicians who said, you know, this this notion that if you talk to somebody about suicide, it will lead them to act on those feelings, totally debunked, totally debunked by many studies as well as by many um, people who have attempted suicide and are now trying to heal. I mean, I, I think um, the conversations that we have to have are tough with our kids. Um, but if we're hiding these uh, problems and, you know, I, I mean, I think of this just even in myself, you know, I think it's very damaging. I think it's a mistake and potentially damaging to hide a mental health diagnosis from your child, uh, from your children, because what are you teaching them about, you know, is there is there some secret here? Is there some shame involved? Uh, talking about it and bringing it out into the open will help them if they then have an issue of their own and they need to get help. So there are plenty of adults uh, who, who um, unfortunately take their lives, who have suicidal ideation. Um, but of course, our, our kids, um, you know, it's, it's a tragic um, set of statistics and a tragic situation. And the more we can talk about it and the more we can take it out of the arena of being taboo and um, – you know, talk about signs and symptoms and what are you feeling and we need to get help. You know, that's the only way we're going to overcome this. I had a, a researcher, um, a psychologist who deals specifically with adolescence, and he had said, take, a, you know, a carbonated two liter bottle and you shake it up. There's all this pressure within that bottle and that when a child or a teen, because I'm going to include children too, right. right. or an adult, mm-hmm. are having suicidal thoughts, they are so ill, their brain health is so impaired at that time, that when we slowly unscrew that lid by having a relationship of trust, making sure it's safe for them to express their emotions, we let the steam out of that. And that's why it's so important for us to ask each other, have you thought about that? Right. And, and to let some of that out and open the window and let light in. I tell the story in the book about a young woman who um, showed up at my house, um, a woman I, young woman I knew. I knew her mom, um, and she was having some real struggles. Um, and I tell the story in the book about how she had been in bed for three days. Her mother said, finally, you have to get up. You have to get up in desperation, you know. I mean, I think so often we don't know what to do. (laughs) Um, She got her up and, boy, she just flew out of the house and went for the interstate and was going to jump off the bridge near our house. And something um, stopped her and she was uh, right around the corner from my house. And she tells the story about how she felt like someone was turning her um, she came to my house. She knocked on the door with her little hood up and in, you know, a cold January day in the snow. And she's weeping. And I open the door and she's weeping. And I pull her in and she tell me, tells me what happened. And, you know, I, I took her to the hospital. I said, we have to get you help right now. Um, and her mother came and she was hospitalized for a time. And, and then several years later, I followed up to see how she had done and, the treatment she had received and how she'd been helped and how she'd come out of this. Um, that's where the hope is in these stories. You know, it's not to say that many of these stories end in tragedy, and I, I get that. But we have to find a way to focus on the hope 
and the hope in these stories and how we could turn this around. I, I appreciate that. Um, one of the chapters that you do begin that we are exploring teens and depression and suicide begins with the name of a young woman who lives behind me, lived behind me. And as you talk about opening things up, it's too, it's too difficult for me to, to talk in depth about my emotions of having this young girl that I knew and love. Um, take her life, Shalise. But the, the border of between my home and her home is just one vinyl fence. And yet I saw her every week. I communicated with her, and yet I didn't know that there was an emotional fence, that there was an illness that I needed to be aware of and sensitive to. And when she did take her life, the loss ricocheted throughout the entire community, throughout high schools. And so the conversations, I I just echo what you say, Jane, the conversations, the questions, the transparency, the honesty, the taking the stigma out, let's bring the fences down and preserve as much of our honesty as we can. We have just uh, another minute or so, Jane. Can I say this? Please. To add to Shalisa's story, Mm -hmm. this is a quote that a young man named Seth told me that I'll never forget. Depression thrives in secrecy, but shrinks in empathy. Depression thrives in secrecy, but shrinks in empathy. If we can remember that and utilize that and take that into our hearts as we deal with these very difficult problems, I think we can, I think we can, I think we can make change. And I'm not over um, exaggerating by saying it's a brave book. It's a needed book. It's a book I believe that each of us will grow as a human being from reading the reality, the truths, um, and the hope that's um, associated with depression. It's called Silent Souls Weeping, Depression, Sharing Stories, Finding Hope. Jane Clayson Johnson, the author, I thank you for what you've penned and for your transparency and for you giving us uh, some concrete steps to take. Indeed, not as a physician, but as somebody who's been there. So, Jane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I appreciate your your willingness to shine a light on this topic and for having me here. Thank and, you. And for more information about the book, you can go online to fm100.com.